there's a little tradition that is often celebrated on Easter. And let's see how quick you catch on to this. It's a greeting that has been done traditionally in the church. And it goes like this, he is risen. He is risen indeed, very good. Let's try it again. He is risen. One more time, he is risen. Amen. Isn't it great to celebrate the Lord's resurrection today? Amen. Well, before we uh, dive into the text, uh, let me get an elephant in the, uh, in the room out of the way. I know I look good today. I know, I know, I know. Just don't get used to it, all right? This is about to be a sweat fest, you know, so... Uh, Man, it is a joy to come together. And uh, I was thinking about, even as I was putting the tie on, the pocket square, that in one sense, we do this on Easter as a way to commemorate and remember the greatness of this day. This is a cause for celebration. And uh, hey, one thing that we want to do today is we want the little ones to celebrate with us. Uh, We failed to dismiss them. So let's do that just now. So if you are... A elementary school age kid, can you make your way out there? Elementary school age kid, make your way that way. Hut two, three, four, there they go. Wonderful. And then little ones, along with your parents, you can follow along behind them. Great, tremendous. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can go to the book of Colossians, chapter number three. And today we're going to be continuing our little mini-series that Rod and I have been preaching through the last couple weeks, where we're picking up on a phrase that occurs in the book of Romans, and it also occurs here in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter three, where it says that those who trust in Jesus have been raised with Christ. What does that mean? We understand, I hope, that Christ resurrected from the grave, but then the Bible also says that those who trust in Jesus have in some sense also been raised with him. So we're going to dive into that and explore that just a little bit more here this morning. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you so much for what this day commemorates. We thank you for the work of Jesus his death on the cross on our behalf, and his powerful resurrection. Lord, we need you. We are dependent this morning. Lord, I'm just a one beggar telling another beggar this morning where to get bread. And I pray there would be some in here this morning that would turn and find hope in the bread of life today. Help us, help us. In the name of Jesus, his mighty resurrected name we pray, amen. I have a bit of uh, 80s trivia here to start out the sermon today. If you can direct your attention towards the screen, can anybody identify who this lovely couple is? Anybody know who that is? Oh, close, I heard it. It is not Marty. It is George and Lorraine McFly. Get it straight, folks, yes. 
This is, of course, from one of the greatest movie series of all time, Back to the Future. I mean, one of my favorites, at least. And in the story, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little spoiler here, but frankly, the movie's almost 40 years old, so if you haven't watched it by now, that's on you, okay? So in the movie, Marty McFly, along with the intrepid Dr. Emmett Brown, have to travel back in time. And the reason that they must do this is to ensure that this lovely couple, George and Lorraine McFly, meet and fall in love. For if they fail to do so, not only would Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, fade from existence, but the whole town of Hill Valley would experience dramatic ramifications. The idea or the premise behind the movie is simply this, like one simple event, them going to the under the sea ball and falling in love. One simple event has profound implications. You could literally say one event changes everything. Now, this is kind of a silly illustration, but in the scripture, we are exposed to an event that has far more far-reaching and dramatic implications, not on an individual, not on a town, but on the entire human race. One event, one solitary event literally changed the course of human history. And that is, of course, what we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, the title of the message is simply this, this changes everything. Um, and it's not just me being dramatic saying that. I'm not kind of being over the top or using rhetoric to make this a bigger deal than it really seems. I'm not saying that the resurrection changes everything to kind of just get a reaction from the crowd. I'm saying the resurrection changes everything because that is the consistent emphasis of the scripture. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what the apostle Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. The resurrection is kind of a big deal. As one author put it, the entire Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to this next statement. If it didn't happen, Christianity is a house of cards. What do I want to emphasize this morning is simply this. I want us all to see that the resurrection of Christ deeply matters. Well, why is the resurrection such a big deal? Why do Christians or churches proclaim a message that Christ is raised from the dead? What implications does it have for our lives? You could actually answer that question in a number of different ways. For instance, you could say the resurrection is a big deal because it's proof positive that Jesus is exactly who he says he was, the very son of God. 
you could say the resurrection is a big deal because it demonstrates that God always keeps his promises. You could say that the resurrection is a big deal because it shows that Jesus had power over death. Or you could say the resurrection is a big deal because Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to bring salvation. And all of these things would be true. Wonderfully so. The resurrection demonstrates all of those things. But in Colossians chapter 3, the passage that we are considering this morning, Paul uses an interesting turn of a phrase when he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse number 1, very carefully, if you would. It says this. So if... You have been raised with Christ. Can you say that statement with me again? Raised with Christ. Did you catch that? Raised with Christ. It seems that in some sense, Paul is saying that when Christ resurrected from the dead, so did those that trust in him. Or if I could put it another way, the resurrection of Jesus is a co-resurrection of sorts. Somehow, in some way, when Jesus stepped out of that tomb, those that trust in him also experienced some of the benefits of the resurrection along with him. Maybe an illustration would help. You know, when Tricia and I got married... Um, I remember, you know, coming back from the honeymoon and, and there was this awesome like pile of presents waiting for us. You remember this? If you got married and you had the reception, you get back and there's this presence and better yet, there's the cards, right? <laughs> and in the cards, there was this thing called money. And we began to open up these cards and some of the gifts in those cards were very generous. I mean, you're pulling out hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars. It was unbelievable. But what was interesting about the whole thing is some of these cards you would open and the check would be in there and it would be signed by a person that I didn't even know. That's the best kind of money, by the way. <laughs> this person that I barely knew or couldn't recognize by face wrote a check to which I was the beneficiary of, get this, because I was united with Trisha. That's why I married her after all. <laughs> Sweet deal. Our union together allowed me to be the beneficiary of things that came to her that I didn't even know about. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here in, in Colossians chapter 3. He's saying, no, you didn't step out of the tomb. No, you didn't do that. But if you are united with Jesus, if your life is wrapped up in his life, then in a very real way, you become the beneficiary of him stepping out of that tomb. You are united with him. That is an awesome reality. So what benefits of the resurrection come to those who trust in Jesus? What are those blessings? What do we come the recipients of through trusting in the work of Christ? I'm going to unpack that in just a minute from this passage of scripture. But if you could almost imagine Paul as being like the head of HR in one sense, 
He's sitting behind the desk and he's saying, look, if you trust in Christ, let me show you this amazing package of benefits that you get. We've got full coverage insurance, best in the business. Our 401k is outstanding. Paul is rolling out for believers the benefits of the resurrection that come to all who put their hope in Jesus. I want to highlight just two of them this morning. So the benefits of the resurrection. Number one, first benefit that you receive through the resurrection is this, new priorities. Now, I need you to put your thinking caps on here for a little bit because you really need to wrap your head around this. So lean in, listen carefully, be prepared to think here. The first benefit of being co-resurrected with Christ is that those who trust in Jesus are given a completely new set of priorities and passions. What do you mean by that? Well, look at verses 1 and 2 with me. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Paul says here that the minds of those who have been raised with Christ should be set, you see it there? Set on the things above and not on earthly things. Let me pause right there for a moment. Just think about that statement carefully. If you trust in Christ, your mind should be set on the things above and not on the things of earth. Doesn't that sound appealing to you? Like really, like stop and think about that for a minute. That your mind could actually be preoccupied with things that matter rather than the trivial and the mundane. Christ is saying here, through his word, he's saying, if you are trusted in me, if you experienced my resurrection with me, you have the power and the ability to put your mind on things that are of eternal significance. Don't you long to be a person who has meaning instead of triviality and temporary things in their heart and mind? Wouldn't you be rather be known for your character and your kindness more than the size of your bank account or your loyalty to a particular sports team? Not that those things are bad, but wouldn't you rather have a life that was set on things above rather than things of just this earth? Wouldn't you rather spend your time encouraging and helping others rather than endlessly scrolling or binging on a show or constantly being overwhelmed by the news of the minute? Here is the reality. At some level, we all desire significance over superficiality. I know that to be true of all of us. You all want your life to matter. You all want there to be some weight to you. You all want your life to have substance, not superficiality. 
And in one sense, the benefit of the resurrection is that that becomes achievable for all who put their hope in Christ. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. Jesus is essentially saying, you want your life to count? You want your life to be significant? You've got to put your hope in me because it is the only thing that has lasting value that won't fade away. But in our world that masters in distraction, right? The world is a master of distraction. Is it even possible to live a meaningful life, a significant, a substantive life? Can we somehow avoid the vortex? And it is. It is a vortex of media and entertainment and narcissism that pulls at all of our hearts and typed and tempts us all. Look, it tempts us all to just be base and basic. There is a temptation in, look, Satan doesn't have to, have to get you to worship him. He just has to distract you from worshiping God. He doesn't have to get your allegiance. He just has to keep your allegiance from the Lord. Don't you long for more? Well, that's the hope of the resurrection. The resurrection gives us power and enablement to overcome the vortex of distraction that is swirling all around us. How do I know that? Look at verse 3. Remember, Paul has said, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And the question you should be asking is, how? How can I do that? The pull of the earth feels so strong. The gravity of earthly things feels powerful compared to the gravity of heavenly things. So how am I supposed to set my mind on things above? Verse number three, for you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, when you trust in the work of Jesus, not only do you die with him, you are raised with him. How is that good news? Let me use an analogy that might help this fact that Paul is saying, hey, you died. This is good for you. <laughs> um, any gardeners in here? Any gardeners? I know there's some in here. Yeah. If you see a plant and it is just severed from its root or it is pulled up out of the ground and just laying there, it's cut off from that. Um, what do you assume is true of that plant? It is dead because a plant can't survive apart from being attached to the nutrients that the soil brings. It's, it's not able to live apart from the nourishment that the ground brings, except for there is this one type of plant. It's called the air orchid. Have you ever heard of this? Air orchids don't need to be in the soil at all. In fact, in some way, God created them so that they draw nutrients from the, from the air itself. They just suck in life from a source that seems to be hidden. Look, 
If you have trusted in Christ, you have been severed from the old way of doing life. Your nutrients, your strength, your hope no longer come from this earth. In Paul's words, you died. You died. This life doesn't give you life. It gives you death. It's poison to you. However, now, Paul says, your life, your source of life is hidden with Christ in God. You're an air orchid. You draw your power, you draw your strength, you draw your source of life from a source that is invisible to most. It doesn't seem like it makes any sense. It doesn't seem like you can really live when you've been severed from this earth and now you are just kind of perched in this weird jar type thing, drawing nutrients from a life source that you cannot see. Look, you want to experience new priorities, recognize that you've been given the ability to do that through the resurrection of Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, you don't have to live for earthly priorities. You can set your mind on heavenly things and live for heavenly things. Your life Life can matter because Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to give you a new source of life and power. Listen, Jesus not only exonerates. What does that mean? Jesus not only forgives. He does. Praise the Lord. He doesn't just forgive you of all the bad stuff that you have done. He not only exonerates, he empowers that's what the resurrection is about. It is a demonstration of the power of God to say, man, it looks like these folks are dead. They are not dead at all. They are more alive than they have ever been. Their source of life just comes from a different place. The resurrection of Christ matters because he cannot just change where you're going. He can change who you are. Number two. Not only does the resurrection give us new priorities, but another benefit of the resurrection is it gives us a new destiny. The Bible clearly teaches that the resurrection is not the end of Jesus' story. It's not a period. It's intermission, as it were. The resurrection is just kind of Jesus' first act. Because what the Bible teaches consistently is that Jesus came... He lived, he died, he rose. The final curtain call is going to be this. He's coming back again. The resurrected king will return. Here's what the Bible says over in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is just after the resurrection. His disciples are standing there. And after Jesus had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing up into heaven. So there they stand, the disciples are like, where's he going? Wow, that's awesome. And at that moment, suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand up there looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. So the moment Jesus leaves, the, the angelic messengers are basically like, he's coming back again. Story's not over. Just, just in intermission, go get your popcorn. Go get yourself a drink, get back in here, because the final curtain call is going to be really good. The finale is going to be awesome. But when Jesus returns the second time, it won't be as a humble servant. 
He won't come in a manger. He won't come quietly. But rather, he will come as the rightful king. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his, what's it say? Okay, no, 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 no. You didn't read that word quite properly. When the Son of Man comes in his One more time. When the Son of Man comes in his and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now catch this. When Christ comes, it will be a coming of... Okay, you're smarter than that, y'all. When Christ comes, it will be a coming of glory. Get that in your head. We're going to return to that in just a moment. Glory. And it won't be good for everyone. Do you see that? He'll come in his glory. This dude's bad. You know who wears a white suit to a fight? Someone who knows they're going to win. He comes back and he says he separates people, the sheep on one hand, the goats on the other. Who are these sheep and goats? The sheep are those who have trusted in Jesus as their king. The goats are the ones who say, we don't want this Jesus to rule over us. We don't want him to be his, our king. Well, they have that freedom. They have that choice. That's on them. But in the end, the king is coming back. And there will be a day of reckoning like the world has never seen. The king will return. And the destiny of those who put their hope in that king is utterly transformed. Say, where do you get that, Ryan? Look back at the text again. Verse number four of Colossians chapter three. When Christ, who is your life, appears. So see see what we're talking about. We're talking about the same thing here. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, this one who you are drawing life from right now, when that one appears, when he comes again, you who have put your hope and trust in him will also appear with him in glory. glory. You ever seen a fluorescent light bulb? Curse things. I don't know why we use them. But there's amazing technology in those things. A fluorescent light bulb is filled with mercury gas. And there's some property in mercury that when it's struck by electricity, it glows. I think it's a great analogy of what's going to happen when Christ returns. When Christ returns in what? He is like that electricity. And when that electricity hits the vapor, you and I, we glow. We experience the glory that's not our own glory. We didn't bring the glory to the table. Jesus brought his own glory with him to the potluck. 
He brought the glory, and when that glory hits us, we experience glory as well. That is the destiny of those who put their hope in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Wow. So because of the resurrection, glory is the destiny of all those who put their hope in him. Sounds pretty good, right? It's quite the benefits package, right? It does sound great, and I know it sounds great to you. How do I know that? Here's why. Because human beings are hardwired for glory. You know that? You are made for glory. That's why people flock to the ocean. Because they want some sort of transcendent experience. It's why every movie tries to be epic or powerful or moving. Because we long for glory. All of us do. A few years ago, PlayStation had a brilliant advertising campaign. I almost just played the commercial for you. It's so smart because it taps into the human psyche. It's this scene of this guy walking around through these epic adventures happening all over him. And he begins it, uh, he begins the commercial with this statement. Who are you not to be great? Who are you to be ordinary? And people resonated deeply with that commercial because it taps into something in our heart. At the end of commercial, the guy offers an invitation, as it were, and he says, greatness awaits. And people are like, yeah, buy me a PlayStation. Except for that smoke and mirrors. What PlayStation, what Sony got right is you are made for greatness. You're just not made for greatness through a video game. There's nothing wrong with video games in and of themselves, but that is just an echo of the reality. You were created for glory. You were created for greatness. So how does Christ deliver on this promise then? He will come in what? And we will share in that? How's that happen? How do people that aren't very glorious, like us, become glorious like Christ? We're given a clue over in the book of 1 John. Look at what it says. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. Okay, ready? How do I know this is talking about the same thing? Next phrase. We know that when he appears, so there it is, Christ's return again, when he appears, what will happen? We will be like him because, that's a super important prepositional phrase. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. This is awesome. I just flicked my watch off. Glory, yeah. Mm. The sight of Jesus is so glorious that just feasting your eyes on him is transformative. 
You see what it says there? We will be like him because we will see him as he is. The moment you see Jesus, the glory is so great. He is so beautiful. He is so lovely. He is so powerful. He is so just. He is so wise. He is so weighty. He is so perfect. He is so glorious that when you see him, you become like him. We've got some echoes of that in the world. You go to the Grand Canyon, right? You ever been to a natural wonder of some sort? Grand Canyon, redwoods, the ocean, a forest, just something grand. And when you stand there at, and look at something glorious, something happens to you, does it not? You start to think like joyful thoughts. You start to think lofty thoughts. You start to want to be better and different because you're transformed by the very sight of glory. You were made for that. And the Grand Canyon and the ocean and the mountains, they're echoes of the one who created the Grand Canyon and the ocean and the mountains. You think you get joy and splendor and wonder and awe by looking at them? Wait till you look on the face of the one who made them. The destiny of those who put their hope in Christ is glory. It is transformed glory. Look, a vision of transcendence is transformational. A vision of transcendence is transformational. Do you long for that? I mean, really, like stop and think about it. For, I, I want us to slow down just a bit this morning. Some of you are bored with life. A lot of you are bored with life. You're just looking kind of for the next hit. You're a junkie in one sense. Just looking for the next thing that's going to bring a little bit, a moment of satisfaction. So you watch the next show and you're like, that was cool and now it's over. Or you do the next activity or you go on the great next vacation. And none of those things in and of themselves are wrong. They're not. But real glory is not in Hollywood. Real glory is not in a spectacular vacation destination. Real glory is not in Paris in a museum or in New York on Broadway. Real glory is not in making the C-suite at work or hitting six figures or seven. It's not in achieving fame or recognition. It's not in raising good kids or having great grandchildren. These are all good things. They're not evil things, but they are not the source of glory. There is a vast amount of glory in this world. But let me tell you something very simply. 
All the glory in creation is a whisper compared to the thunderclap of glory that is in Christ. Solomon said it this way. He had it all. He had it all. Solomon was like Bill Gates and Elon Musk combined. He was so rich that that silver wasn't even valuable anymore. He had every achievement in the world. He was the innovator. He He was the king. He had it all, and he said at the end of the day, it's just like a chasing of the wind. I had it all, and I can't ever catch it. It won't satisfy my soul. Why? Because we're made for glory, and the echoes won't satisfy. Only the substance will. I'm not saying any of the things where you are looking for glory or beauty are bad things, but they're not ultimate things. If we make a good thing an ultimate thing, that's called an idol thing. Some of you have been chasing the wind for years. And there's a hole in your heart because of it. Because you've just been drinking poison. Trying to find the next hit. And it will not satisfy. And that's why the resurrection of Christ is good news. Because he's saying like, that thing you're longing for, it's there. It's coming. But it's not down here. It's up there. You got to wait. But I will expose you to inconceivable glory if you put your trust in me. Listen to the words of Scripture. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine how glorious Christ is. Your mind is not sufficient to wrap your brain around the level of glory, the destiny of those who hope in Christ. C.S. Lewis says it really well. I can't improve upon it. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, you were made for something different. You were made for something better. You were made for something glorious. So that leaves us with two questions. First one is this. Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want this glory? Do you want these priorities? to be changed by the work of Christ. The question really is simply this, do you want to be raised with Christ? If the answer is no, you can walk out and be like, you told like a somewhat funny joke and didn't waste my time too much. But if you do want it, there's another question, right? How do you get it? It's not just like, do you want to be raised with Christ? The question is like, how does a person get raised with Christ? Like Paul talks about here in this passage, like Jesus invites us to. How is one's life so wrapped up in Jesus that they 
are raised. Perhaps it's best to hear the answer from Christ himself. John 6, verse number 40, Jesus uses a similar phrase. For it, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Notice this next phrase, and I will, what's it say? Raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. So according to Jesus, the people he will raise, you see the verse, are those who see and believe in him. It's clearly what he says here. Those who see and believe in the Son of God, those are the ones I'll raise up on the last day. So let me unpack this with a final analogy. You see, right now, humans lives, humanity, all of us, live in a spiritual zombie land. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, we live in a culture of death all around us. Yeah, there's a semblance of life. We're groping around to try to survive. This kind of broken down life, looking for love in all the wrong places, trying to find something that will bring us real satisfaction and joy. Why? Because we're all infected with a disease of sin. All of us. And because of that, we're cut off from true life. We're all zombies in one sense. Half dead, half living. Some semblance of knife, but not the real thing. But God, in his mercy, sent Jesus into zombie land. And because Jesus was the son of God, he did not yield to the sin sickness that infected the rest of us and live the life we should have lived. But in order to fully repair the breach that sin had created between God and man, Jesus not only had to live among us, he had to lay down his life to provide a cure that plagued all of humanity. And so he went to the cross on behalf of spiritual zombies like you and I, half dead people with no real life in them, infected by the sin sickness and the perfect, fully living human being, the only man to have fully lived, went to the cross and bore our disease, bore the sin that has borne its way into all of our hearts, and he laid down his life on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for that sin sickness. And here's the thing, because he was life, because he was uninfected, not even death could hang on to him. He laid down his life and he stepped out of that tomb as the true life. And in so doing, he said, anyone and everyone who would ever put their hope in me could be cured from their zombie existence. Hey, y'all, I'm talking to some zombies in here today. You identify with that. This is how you go through life. Joyless, 
fake life because you've never experienced resurrection power. The power to change not just where you go, but the power to change who you are. And both of those things happen simultaneously. Jesus changes us fundamentally. And the blessing of this, it's a here and now message and it's a then and there message. It has to do with where we go and it has to do right now with who you are. You ever seen a non-zombie before? I like to be around non-zombies because they got life. Jesus made the promise. Jesus made this promise to all who would put their hope in him. I have come that they may have life and life in abundance. Listen, friends, Jesus didn't come to make your life moderately better. Jesus didn't come to make the best out of a bad situation. Jesus came so you could live and live in the fullest and truest sense. And yes, that life will be fully consummated when he appears and we appear with him in glory. But right now you can begin to taste that life this morning. Resurrection power is available to all who see the Son and believe in the Son. You simply turn to Him and you say, Christ, your death is enough for my sin and your life is enough for my misery. You are enough in every sense of the word. You are enough. I'm sick of being a zombie. I want to call us to respond in two simple ways. Remember that Jesus came to put death to death, friends. So do you need life? This morning, do you need life? Are you a zombie? Going through this whole existence, moaning and groaning, looking for things that don't really satisfy you, and you're like, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. Come to the one who will give you bread and living water. Come. He will rescue you right now from this pseudo life that you've been living second response is this. Maybe there's someone in your life that you know needs life. And you're like, you know what? I got bread in my pocket and I haven't given them any. I carry around a flask of living water and I've just kept it hidden. But there are people in my life that desperately need life. And I want to be the instrument to introduce them to the Savior, the resurrected King who can give life. I want to call us to respond in two ways this morning. We're going to, the band's going to come in just a minute. I'm going to pray for us. And as you look around the room, there are folks kind of stationed all over the place. If you would like to pray with somebody, maybe you yourself need life. You need to turn to Jesus and be rescued from this zombie existence. I encourage you to go talk to one of those folks. Pray with them. If you want to pray for someone in your life and you'd like somebody to pray with you, I'd encourage you to do that. If you would like to pray with somebody around you, that's fine as well. I just want to invite us all to respond. Do you need life? Is there someone in your life that needs life? 
all of us should be in some sense crying out to God right now. And these folks are available to serve you if you would like to pray with them. So let's respond in kind. I'm gonna pray and then you feel free to pray right there in your seat, move around the room. Let's just seek the author of life together. Can we do that? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has resurrected from the grave. And part of the joy of that is he has set us free from this zombie land existence. There is hope for us for new priorities. There is hope for us for a new destiny. Lord, you will come in glory and that is what we are made for. I pray right now for folks in this room that some of them would take hold of the promise of life that you hold out to them. The one who sees and believes in the Son will have eternal life. Lord, I pray for all of us, if there are folks in our life that are walking around in a culture of death. Lord, would you help us to share with them the living water, the bread of life, that alone can quench a thirsty and feed a hungry soul. Lord, we just need you right now. Please come, please come. In the name of Christ, I pray.